it was it was a shame that, that the uh, pressure of the schedule forced us to bring it into the last session, which was which was wonderful. But there is a silver lining, and that is that we have a whole sequence of other great sessions, and now we're at the second one, which will be moderated by my, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jeremy Surrey. If there's a more dynamic and engaging scholar on this campus, or any other campus for that matter, I just don't know who that would be. Jeremy's a renowned diplomatic historian whose uh, work also extends into topics as varied as, as strategy and leadership and leadership across a variety of institutional settings. Uh, I'll, I'll briefly note among his many, many publications are some wonderful books, including uh, Henry Kissinger in the American Century and Liberty's Surest Guardian, American <laughs> Nation Building from the Founders to Obama. I'm especially proud to emphasize Jeremy's uh, important role at the Strauss Center, where he occupies the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for moderating and for taking the lead on this panel, which addresses, uh, broadly framed, the diplomatic and historical context of the issues that we're grappling with for NSA today. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, thank you for having me uh, here and for allowing me to play this, uh, this small role as, uh, <clears throat> as a mouse uh, asking questions to the, the big dogs over here. Uh, it's really uh, wonderful to be a part of the Strauss Center. I have the best job in the world in part because I get to work with Bobby and Admiral Inman. Uh, and if you don't like anything I do, just blame them. They're the reason I'm here. Uh, it's really uh, a great pleasure to be at UT and to be able to put on events uh, like this. I also do want to begin by giving a shout-out uh, to Chris Ingalls and uh, John DeLong. Uh, last night we had a challenging conversation about the NSA and about the difficulties of explaining to students, and I have 300 of them every Tuesday and Thursday morning, explaining to students what the NSA does, and they volunteered to come and talk to my students this morning. So the reason we came in late to the last session was they spent an hour and a half, uh, even more than that, longer than that, with 300 of my undergraduates this morning. And if nothing else, uh, this conference has changed the world because of that. <laughs> it really has. That was wonderful. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. Okay, um, so my, my job here is to introduce the panelists quickly and start a conversation, and I know there'll be no questions from the audience at all, so we'll just uh, do our own thing. Uh, let me begin with uh, Susan Landau. She's an expert well-known to everyone here on cybersecurity, privacy, and public policy. Uh, she's been involved with Google and Sun Microsystems. She's been a faculty member at UMass Amherst and Wesleyan and will be, I think, starting this fall at Worcester, Worcester Poly Polytechnic Institute. She's written a number of books. The book I'm familiar with of hers uh, is Surveillance or Security, The Risks Posed by New Wiretapping Technologies, published by MIT Press in 2011 in nice paperback form. I encourage everyone to buy it. Uh, Kristen Silverberg is another one of our distinguished uh, panelists. I feel like I've known uh, Kristen vicariously for years through her, through her husband and various other fans of hers around Washington, <laughs> D.C. Uh, one of the best-known people in, in Washington and well-loved by everyone, which seems amazing. Uh, she's the general counsel and senior advisor at the Institute of International Finance. Uh, she has served in many important roles, uh, including U.S. Ambassador to the European Union from 2008 to 2009, Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs from 2005 to 2008. She was also a Deputy Assistant to the President and Advisor to the Chief of Staff, and she served in Baghdad uh, as well, Baghdad, Iraq, in 2003. So she's played a number of major roles, and she uh, has a strong connection to Austin. She's a UT School of Law graduate, so it's good to have you back home. Thank you. And then uh, the honorable, uh, I have to say the honorable, uh, James Simon, 
Uh, Jim uh, is a, for, a former Microsoft chief strategist for its worldwide public sector. That sounds like a great job. The Microsoft's chief strategist. Uh, he founded the Microsoft Institute for Advanced Technology and Governments. Um, he's played a number of roles inside government as well at the U.S. Army, uh, but most specifically, he was the assistant director of the Central Intelligence for Administration in the Clinton administration, uh, and now is the CEO of IELLC, which I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure it's that fascinating. Is. So, um, I'm a historian, as you know, and I think it's valuable, and I'm glad that uh, Bobby agrees for us to bring a historical perspective to these issues. And one of the most important questions we ask as historians is about change over time. How have things changed over time? So I want to begin by asking a historical question of each of the panelists in their area of expertise. So Susan, first, uh, as someone who writes about issues of cybersecurity and privacy, what are the biggest changes we've seen over the last 10 years? Uh, due to new technologies and new controversies over the uses of those technologies. Sure. So um, the biggest change, of course, is the adoption of the Internet for e-commerce and the resulting cybersecurity issues that result. And for that, I'm going to slightly go back more than 10 years oh, to 30 years to, to what uh, Admiral Inman was talking about with the crypto wars. We had the crypto wars starting in the late 1970s about publication, by academics and industry researchers, and then later the crypto wars morphed in the 1990s to whether or not U.S. firms could export devices with strong forms of cryptography. Strong forms of cryptography meaning cryptography that was hard to break by machines of the time. And the NSA and the FBI were actually opposed to this during the 1990s. Um, one of the purposes of preventing export was that then domestic devices were also uh, not made with strong cryptography that didn't impede the NSA too much, which was not involved at that time in domestic um, eavesdropping of, of any sort, but it did impede the FBI, um, uh, that is, if strong cryptography had existed in devices used at home. And that's why the two were aligned. By the late 1990s, the NSA changed its, its opposition for a number of reasons, including the fact that the Defense Department was actually buying commercial off-the-shelf equipment. And if U.S. firms couldn't build devices with strong cryptography. They had to be custom-made for the Defense Department. That was expensive. And so the NSA changed its opinion, and the export control roles changed. And I'm, I'm collapsing you know, several books' worth of material <laughs> into about four sentences. But uh, one of the, the, the ways the export controls changed is that you could export devices with strong cryptography. And what that meant is, uh, and, but there were caveats. You couldn't do it without an export license if you were selling to a government, if you were selling to a communications service provider. So what it enabled was the manufacture and sale of devices with strong cryptography, both abroad and domestically, for retail. And that took away a lot of the pressure that had been building in Congress against the export regulations. And, and so you had that. At the same time, what you started seeing in around 2001 was first criminal activity on the Internet, and then, of course, nation-state, which, which had been going on earlier than 2004, but became public around 2004. And so now, all of a sudden, we get to the 10-year period you're talking about. U.S. government becomes very publicly concerned about cybersecurity. And here's where things get really messy. Over the last 15 years, the NSA has been wonderfully involved in helping to establish and helping to develop private sector telecommunications infrastructure security. Uh, now, this is somewhat hard to believe given everything we've been discussing today, but there have been a number of examples. For example, 
help with the advanced encryption standard, which is a 128, 192, 256-bit uh, encryption standard, something called Suite B, which is a set of algorithms to secure a network as opposed to just securing a communication. What has come out in the, in the last six months, the, the revelations in the fall as opposed to the revelations in, the, in June, is that the NSA was also involved in subverting certain crypto standards. That is, getting the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is the U.S. government agency that develops standards for the use by the non-national security agencies, and by extension, actually, for use within industry and often industry abroad um, because the standards are so good and vetted in an open process and so on. The NSA had subverted one process, uh, one, one such algorithm, which then found its way across many applications. And this was a, a really quite bad thing. So now you have this very odd thing. You have, on the one hand, the U.S. is under assault from criminals, from nation states, potentially from single-actor terrorists, although we have not really seen serious examples of this so far. And the U.S. government is trying, through the Defense Department, to, to enable cybersecurity. And then, on the other hand, you have the NSA subverting some of that through, the, through bad standards. But wow. I'll, I'll stop now. And well, that's a wonderful paradox to think about. Uh, Kristen, uh, as a diplomat, how have these technological changes and the controversies around them changed, changed the work of a diplomat? How was how your life different now? Yeah, well, I guess um, just to step way back, the the role of diplomacy has changed, has evolved a lot in recent years. Um, post 9/11, the big revelation was the role of non-state actors. Um, so the understanding that the main action really wouldn't be taking place in big conferences or summits in Geneva, that really we had to understand what was happening in villages and um, and cities, kind of outside um, the reach of traditional diplomacy. Um, I think even going back even farther, even pre-9-11, um, the change in the diplomatic landscape in terms of the emergence of um, other power centers. Um, so we live in a G20 world now. Um, we really have to understand the objectives of kind of a broad range of international actors. Um, and then also I think maybe the evolution in terms of the difficulty in this climate of prioritizing U.S. diplomatic objectives um, – so for a diplomat in the Cold War, the existential Soviet nuclear threat meant that they were under extraordinary um, pressure if you were in a national security role in the U.S., um, but it had the advantage of focusing the mind that the discussions about U.S. priorities um, within the U.S. government were in some ways easier um, than they are in this climate where we're relieved of, the, of what we think of as an existential threat. And so if you go to the State Department now and ask them what's the U.S. foreign policy priority, you really would get 20 different answers. Um, and so all of these things mean that for diplomats, um, the demands diplomats make on the intelligence community are much more complicated. The kinds of questions that you pose, I should say not more complicated, more diverse. So the kinds of questions you might pose to the intelligence um, community could be anything from um, – I don't know, understanding how a migration debate in Europe will affect the outcome of the European Parliament elections and how that might affect the debate over data protection. And, um, and I think if you'd ask somebody from the intelligence community, they would say that they're getting lots of kind of varied, varied demands from them and diplomats um, as intelligence consumers. Um, so I guess that's just to say it's less 
sort of the role of technology in changing diplomacy. It's more that the global landscape is changing and that the relationship between diplomats and the intelligence community um, has changed as a result and, of that. And how does that work on a day-to-day -day basis now if you're the ambassador to the EU? Who are you talking to in the intelligence community? Who do you go to when you need something? Um, it would depend. You might go to your mission chief. You might go to um, – you might send questions back. You know, there are um, intel briefers back at the State Department who are available to, to answer questions. So it would um, – you know, so it would depend. Um, uh, I found, you know, the – I was working on Europe issues, and as I was saying to somebody earlier um, – the Europeans leak like crazy. Um, they're not particularly secretive. You can learn a lot by showing up at a cocktail party and asking them. Um, or, you know, asking them about each other. Um, you just ask the French, what are the Germans up to? And you might get a, a pretty good answer. Um, so in that sense, you know, I found, I found the sort of intel less useful on the kind of, on that side. Um, uh, to me, it was sort of one additional, one additional point of information to help me put something in a broader context. Great. Great. Jim? A comment. Uh, you'd be interested in this. There are much fewer secrets than there used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, the German general staff system, countries had war plans. Those, for the most part, no longer exist. Most of the states on Earth today actually don't have secrets in the old sense. And one of the great problems that we face, uh, ambassadors and, and everyone else, is that the people that we are talking to or listening to or intercepting or reading their mail, they actually don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and that's become quite a problem for us because we no longer, because there are no longer secrets, there's no longer defined policy, and what you have are arrays of opinions. And it makes it very, very difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff. So I, I'd like, so I would actually like to say, and this idea is not original to me, is that what we're really looking at is the difference between secrets and mysteries. Yes. Secrets are the issue of how many type, you know, and I'm not a missile expert, type X missiles do the Soviets have. Mysteries are what's actually happening in Iran around the time of the fall of the Shah? Have we actually figured out that Khomeini is broadcasting through the mosques and we didn't even realize it? So we're now in a time of mysteries, which makes the information gathering all the more important and all the more complex. Right, and makes the analysis all the more important, it seems. So, so Jim, this is a good segue into a discussion uh, in your domain about the relationship between the business world and government. Uh, how has that changed around these issues for the la over the last 10 years? Well, as Susan pointed out, this started a, quite a while back. The, probably the biggest problem we have is that the information technology companies are global companies, and they have to do business in a global environment, which means that U.S. law is very interesting but not determinative. Uh, as you may have read, Yahoo, for example, is going to start encrypting its email. Well, I can assure you there are countries in which they will have to provide the crypto key to that government if they plan to do business in that country, or they can leave. Uh, unfortunately, if Yahoo doesn't do that and they're forced out uh, because of the failure of the United States Congress and when they wrote Sarbanes-Oxley, the one shareholder in Beijing will sue Yahoo and probably win a great deal of money for fiduciary responsibility if Yahoo got kicked out of China, for example. So one of the problems that the companies have is that in a global environment, who do you serve and under what conditions? Uh, many of the companies are actively consider leaving the United States for that purpose alone. The problem is, where do you go? 
because the rule of law does matter, and that pretty much leaves you in the United States, Europe, and certain countries in Asia, and that's about it. This is causing a lot of problems for them, and it inhibits their ability to help and to assist because of these legal complications that they don't know how to resolve. I'm not sure what we do about it. I think that it would be useful if the uh, government, or Congress, or whoever thinks they can influence things would give some thought to how we do this sort of thing. There are national security exclusions in Sarbanes-Oxley for defense contractors. And so the consequence is that when the United States wants to take on cybersecurity, they outsource it to Lockheed Martin or Boeing, as opposed to Google or Apple or Yahoo, who might conceivably know more about the topic than a defense contractor. The consequence, I believe, is that the United States, uh, we talked about it yesterday, we are no longer even in the top ten in cyber. Uh, our country has fallen very far behind a number of other countries, uh, both offensively and defensively. Uh, what we're going to do about that, I think, is a great challenge. Uh, at some point, there will be some public disaster, and everyone will want to fix it. But for right now, we are just falling behind. The United States government spends less money on cyber than the companies. They spend less money than some of the criminal gangs. So in a time of uh, short budgets, you have to worry about the fact that the successors to the late Russian business network spend more money on cyber attack than the United States government does. So these are problems that we have to face, and I think the companies are integral to the solution. The question is, how does how do these companies, these global companies, help the United States government and not help the other signatories of the World Trade Organization Treaty, which includes people you really don't like? So this actually leads to uh, another set of questions I wanted to put on the table, which are questions about governance, right? We use the term governance often as if it's a consistent uh, term, but of course it means different things in different times, right? And the founders of our society did not in any way contemplate the world we're living in today. Uh, and if you read the Federalist Papers, which I know everyone has read, right, they talk about checks and balances working in a, in a very simple way, right, where Congress has people come to report to it, Congress evaluates, and then works with the executive to implement, and the judiciary steps in when necessary when there's a conflict. Uh, obviously, we're in a much more complicated space. It's fast-moving, and the information is far more complex. So how should we think about governance in your specific domains? How, how are the domains governed right now? I know that's a big question, but I think it's a hard one and worth uh, investigating. And how should we think about the evolution of governance uh, in, these, in these areas? To put it more specifically, who is minding the store? Susan? Um, so I have come from private industry, and uh, uh, so I worked first for Sun for 11 years, and I worked quite recently um, uh, for Google. I, my last day was about two weeks ago, but it was a, a short period at Google. Um, Sun was selling hardware and some software, and uh, we were very subject to the U.S. export control restrictions, and that's what governed us more than anything. Google is a consumer-facing industry, and uh, as such, um, it, it has been very subject, for example, to the European data protection issues. Um, it considers itself a U.S. company, and it abides by U.S. law. Uh, when requests come in for wiretaps, for example, from other countries, they have to go through the MLAT, the, the Mutual tr uh, tr uh, uh, Legal Treaty, rather than being served in the country in which the, the wiretap order has come. The data is stored typically at – well – 
let me leave that one alone. Um, the only thing I'm allowed to say about the number of computers Google has is one. <laughs> so I can't tell you where the other computers are because we only have one, <laughs> or they only have one. Um, so um, we talk about a lack of governance. We talk about multi-governance and so on. Up till recently, and even still now, of course, Internet governance is still very much a U.S.-centric thing. Um, and it is a U.S.-centric thing with very odd pieces to it because there is the official governance and then there's the unofficial part run by, by industry consortia, uh, not so much industry consortia, but engineering consortia, such as the IETF. Um, one of the big conflicts we have at present is that various nations, such as China, such as Russia, would like to see the Internet, which is this sort of organic, free-flowing, not fully, it was organic and free-flowing back in the 80s and 90s before it became a commercial entity, and different companies saw the advantage of pushing their ideas into the protocols that govern how the Internet works. Um, but it is still a somewhat organic and free-flowing object as opposed to telephony, which is governed by different nation-states. So there's a big conflict right now uh, in which U.S. companies and the U.S. government are fairly much aligned that the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, should not take charge of Internet protocols and, and Internet design. If that were to happen, the free-flowing nature that one sees and the ability to do publishing on the Internet and so on would change drastically and in ways that at least the U.S. government and U.S. companies would not like. Other countries would view that as being able to establish control over information flowing within their borders and see it quite differently. Well, so it sounds like in a functional way there are different governing entities for different functional That's correct. roles at different That's moments. That's correct. Okay. Great. Jim? I would actually echo what Susan just said. I mean, the great challenge we face is the it's not so much technical, it's more ethical, moral, uh, what you think society should be. And we are in a struggle with uh, nation states and other actors that would prefer that more control be exercised. And our government uh, has, along with the Europeans, has led the resistance against that, if you will. Having said all that, it's still very, very difficult for us. Uh, we don't know what the future is going to bring. Technology moves so fast that it's very difficult for us to imagine a set of protocols or governance that will survive the next revolution in chipsets. Mm. Uh, we are at a situation where policy and intelligence and government is chasing technology. In the old days, if you wanted to go to space, you went to space with the government. The government's controlled access to space. You played but their game or you didn't go. The Internet's completely different. The Internet is run by a whole bunch of people that are not easily controlled, even if you wanted to control them. And there's a fair amount of anarchy in the Internet, which is not a bad thing, actually. Uh, but the reality is it's very difficult to control something when you don't have any means of control. Telephony, we had means. Even that's going away. I mean, I think that once you do away landlines, you can forget that one, too. But in the meantime, that's the big problem we face. How do we deal with the fact that technology outpaces our ability to create rules of governance, to write law, to figure out what our policy should be? And your reference to space reminds me of something John mentioned to my students this morning, that his grandmother still thinks he works for NASA. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, two, there are two big developments on the governance um, space 
worth noting. Um, one is this data protection debate in Europe, which was taking place two years before the Snowden revelation, um, driven in large part by, not in large part, in part by um, the sense in Europe that the U.S. was indifferent to privacy concerns and this idea that there were um, sort of U.S. technology companies who were, you know, sweeping up European data and doing who knows what with it. And so um, they were already in the middle of this debate, and the NSA revelations really kind of fed um, the fire on that. There was a vote in um, the European Parliament earlier this month that was something like 621 to 10 um, in favor of really sweeping dramatic revisions to the way they treat data protection. So everything from um, creating rights, purporting to create a right for European consumers to be able to delete their data, limitations on how European data gets sent overseas, um, and so on. And this will all be subject to um, basically a debate with the European Council, which represents the member states. Um, so it's not clear where it will come down, but all of the um, all of the really momentum is in favor of of dramatic revisions to how. Europeans treat data, um, which will be relevant, particularly to U.S. companies doing business in Europe, but um, uh, but you know globally. Um, the second big thing um, is that the you know since the 1990s, the Internet Domain Name System, which Susan could explain much better than I can, um, has been um, managed by a nonprofit corporation in California called ICANN, which was doing the job under a um, contract with the U.S. Department of Commerce. And this has always been a source of controversy. There's always been a move to sort of globalize that function. Um, so we had debate in the Clinton administration. There were debates in the Bush administration. We had big fights at the ITU about this, the um, continuation of this program. And the Obama administration, in part reacting to the enormous pressure they've been under since the Snowden revelations, announced recently that they were prepared to move away from that system, to give up the U.S. Um, Department of Commerce contract and to transition into some other um, to-be-decided um, governing entity. And so ICANN has now convened a process um, under a set of criteria outlined by the administration, um, one of which is that it should not go, the function should not go to an intergovernmental body like um, the ITU, which, as Susan said, is a, you know, could, um, is basically an international organization that includes membership from, you know, 190 countries, including many who have very different views about Internet openness than we do. Um, but there's a real danger in this because once the Department of Commerce basically signs away that contract, um, U.S. leverage over what happens any time going forward um, is really um, is really minimized. And so I think, you know, Susan should weigh in, but I think this is a this is a reason for real concern, um, that this could be a foot in a door for an entirely different kind of way of thinking about Internet governance that really could invite um, involvement from, from government players who have very different objectives. Susan, did you want to comment on that? Um, so I'm not actually an expert on, on that particular area. Uh, my sense is that that is going to actually move quite slowly, um, so. is the first step, is the first piece. Um, there are actually interests in foreign countries that they don't yet realize. So, for example, the idea, um, what one of the ways that the Internet is complicated for many of these countries is that the whole pricing structure for communications going in and out sort of disappears when you do the Internet. And, and, uh, and what 
what that means is that the, the different telcos and the different nations that are state monopoly telcos get very unhappy. At the same time, if you have, for example, let me just think of one particular application, and the application I want to talk about is MOOCs, the Massively Online Courses. Well, you know, they have huge enrollments to start with, and then they have dwindling enrollments that finish. Doesn't sound like that great a deal. Unless you're in Cameroon or Singapore, where all of a sudden these kids right. have the ability to get MIT lectures or Stanford lectures or UT lectures the best, yeah. <laughs> um, at the price of an internet connection. Now, if you start tra charging, if the government starts charging, if the telco starts charging at the level of the, at the, level of the number of packets coming right. in and so on, it is actually doing harm to itself. So the, the idea... That, that it's going to actually exercise control and make this into a monopoly in the same way that the phone companies were monopolies is actually in many ways counterproductive. The, the, the small countries have a lot to benefit by the wealth of information and the ability to download it that exists and is being created mostly by Europe and, 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 and the U.S., some other places too. But so I think it is it will take a more nuanced discussion. I think that this looks worse on the surface than it probably is. Um, but that's all I really can say. So I want to ask one final question, and then I promise to open it up to the, to the audience. And after I ask my question, I'd like the first audience question to be from a student, actually. Uh, and then, then we'll go to uh, older men and women. <laughs> um, but my, uh, my question is, is a historian's question, and one I, I've been longing to ask for, for quite a while, so now I finally get to ask it. Um, are, we, are we living in a period that's equivalent uh, around issues of information to the late 19th century for the British. Because one of the key arguments made by uh, historians of the British Empire is that the way the empire works, the paradox, of course, is this small island, right, controls so much of the world and gains so much wealth from it. The argument that Chris Bailey and other great historians of the empire make is that it's actually the British mastery of information, right, through the Navy, through the Telegraph, right, through the Oxbridge system of training people, right? So if you read T.E. Lawrence, he talks about all these things in fact, right? And the story of the late 19th century, early 20th century is often written by historians as the British losing their control over the information scape, being challenged in particular by the United States and Germany and to some extent uh, Japan. Uh, are, are we in, in a similar moment? Is that a way to think about this or is that completely off base? Feel free to say it's completely off base. I'll ignore what you say, but feel free to say that. <laughs> I'm the least qualified to answer, so I'll go first. But the, um, to me, there's a... Um, at least as compared to Europe, the U.S. still enjoys overwhelming dominance, you know, and this is a point that um, is part of what's driving, I think, just to give you this cynical take, is part of what's driving Europe's response to the Snowden revelation is for them, this is a commercial opportunity, actually. Um, you know, they look at a world where, you know, I think nine of the top 100 technology companies are headquartered in Europe, which is an extraordinary... That many? That many, yeah. Which is, it, which is extraordinary because collectively that's the world's largest market by a, you know, by a pretty sizable percentage. It's larger than all of the BRICs combined, um, but they only have nine of the top technology companies. I think 85% of the global market for cloud-based services are... Um, is controlled by U.S.-based companies. And so the Europeans can see a world, you know, they can see sort of a future where the Chinese start to eat into that, um, but there isn't really, there aren't conditions in Europe for the Europeans to start eating into that. Um, and so both because of kind of labor force issues, um, 
uh, problems, you know, capital sure. and other things. So, um, so I guess that's to say that at, from the diplomats, non-experts perspective, we're still in a place where the U.S. enjoys considerable advantages. So I have a three-part answer to it. First of all, I want to go back to the point about mysteries versus secrets, and we really are in that world. Um, post, you know, post the end of the Cold War, and despite what happened in Crimea, we're still post the end of the Cold War. Mysteries are the real issue, and and we're still in a place where we shared, we have the data. Um, one way to think about it, um, and I'm indebted to Ross Anderson for this particular viewpoint, is. Why did the why are we part why was the US part of the five eyes? Why did Sweden start sharing intelligence data? Because you go where the biggest network is. That's just a simple economic argument. If the US is the biggest if the US intelligence agencies are the biggest data collectors, then you go where the network is. Second point I want to make is a real changing nature of the IT industry. Um, I worked at Sun until 2010 when Sun was bought by Oracle. Um, we were largely a hardware company. When I'm, uh, I live in Western Massachusetts, but I, uh, I worked for Sun Remotely. I came to Google for, starting last August um, to learn Google technology and people before I returned home. Um, and I found a huge shift in the valley. Now, true, I worked, moved from a hardware-facing, hardware enterprise company to a software consumer company, but I could also see it throughout the valley. Who was blow, growing? Facebook, Google, LinkedIn. Those were the companies that were growing. And we were moving from hardware being the dynamic industry or part of the dynamic industry in the valley to software. Um, and then the third thing, closely related to the, the second, is the rise of big data. Um, I am uh, on the Computer Science Telecommunications Board, which is the research part of the National Academy of Sciences. We charter studies. And one of the comments somebody made at a board meeting two weeks ago really struck me. He said, uh, so machine intelligence, I should tell you, is looking at data and finding correlations. That's a very blunt description for what is actually a statistically very sophisticated tool. It's what many of the companies use. And his point was that the worst machine intelligence algorithm beats the best one once you give it an order of magnitude more data. Um, now, who are the big... Is that true? Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so who are the big data collectors in the, United, in the world? Well, Kristen told us. She said um, 91 of the, the biggest computer companies are in the United States. Who do they include? Google and so on. Facebook, those are data collectors. The U.S. government is a data collector. So as long as machine intelligence has that trumping effect on, on big data, um, I would say, sure, that's going to happen. The Chinese economy is going to overtake the U.S. economy. But... The US, but we're, we're talking about a matter of decades rather than a matter of years, and certainly not a matter of weeks. Good, good. Jim, did you want to add anything on this? <clears throat> um, I would agree that right now we still are, are dominant. I, I do believe our dominance is may have a shorter time frame, perhaps, than my colleagues. Uh, the reason has to do with advancements in um, mathematics, uh, engineering, and science. Uh, we're falling. We are behind. There's just no way to say it any other way. Uh, the fact that Microsoft and Google and Oracle and the rest of them hire most of their engineers now abroad is, a, is an issue. Fortunately, a lot of these folks want to stay here, so that's a good thing. We're a nation of immigrants. That works out well. But that is the issue. There's always a chance of a revolutionary technology or an advance in mathematics, whether it be quantum computing or whatever, that could shift all this. You know, whether that will happen or not, I don't think anyone really knows. 
But I do think you have to be concerned with that. I am less concerned about China and Russia than many uh, because I believe that societies that are driven by corruption ultimately fail. I'm much more concerned that their failure will drag all of us down and the uh, fallout for it. But I don't think actually they will ever be very competitive. The Europeans, I agree completely with that. The problem, of course, with the Europeans is that I think they invented the word hypocrisy. So it's very interesting to hear that they're interested in privacy these days. As a parent, I think parents invented the parents. word hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, I think it was the Greeks, actually, but we don't Teenagers. want to go there. Teenagers. Oh, yeah. So this is going to be a, a struggle. These are free societies trying to deal with a change in technology that, as you pointed out, the Federalist Papers did not envision, nor did the Magna Carta. And we have to figure out how we're going to do this in a world where the technology changes faster than the government can keep up with. Uh, my government, uh, Admiral Inman's government, Chris's government, has some of the most obsolete computer equipment and software known to God. So when you're in that role, it's very difficult for us to be confident that we're going to maintain our position of leadership. So I want to say that I completely agree with Jim on the issue of science and engineering. Um, uh, the STEM education situation in this country is just dreadful. Yeah. Um, the a number of students studying science and engineering is just terrible in terms of the, the low numbers, and it is true. I didn't, I didn't see half of the hires at Google being from, from out of the country, but certainly a significant proportion. And if they stay in a U.S. company for a few years and then go back, that's not ultimately good for the United States, uh, something I worried about as I was at Google. Um, the other thing, but there is a place where I, I, I wanted to amplify or, or slightly disagree with what you said, which is um, there are many components to what makes a strong uh, science and engineering economy. And there are the, the graduates, but there's also the business environment, mm -hmm. the laws, the ability to innovate, the things within the, uh, the country's business regulations that make it simple to get new products out quickly and so on. And that's a place where at least so far the United States is generally in a good position. One place it's not is with software patents, which I think are completely ridiculous. Um, but in general, the U.S. is in a very good position that way, and that's one of the things that's made the U.S. quite competitive. Great. So I think we're going to start with a student question. So do we have a student question? Brandon. Hi. Thank you all for being here. Brandon Archlet. I'm a graduate student at UT. You frame this very much in an institutional way. Uh, we've got pictures of Google's one giant computer and, and uh, what's happening with the, uh, the State Department. And I, I just wonder, what about at the tactical level? What, what are the implications of all this for... Uh, our uh, espionage and tradecraft, uh, our field officers in uh, foreign stations, and how do we give them the tools to continue to gather the fewer secrets that are out there and protect uh, the few secrets that we have left? So I think the U.S. government has not done a great job in this. Um, I would say that private industry has probably impeded this. Uh, I can't remember how many decades, well, how many years' worth of reports I've seen on the cybersecurity crisis and what we need to do, but I know that back home in western Massachusetts, there's at least one file cabinet of government reports on this stretching back to the, the late or early mid-1990s. Um, there are various incentives against doing it uh, within the way the U.S. works. Um, on the other hand, um, 
I think we are finally coming to a point where companies realize that there is a problem and they need to do something about it. I don't think we've come to the point where we've made it easy for users. I have seen some efforts by the U.S. government, both from PCAST, the President's Committee uh, on Science and Technology, uh, and from an NSF report that is forthcoming with simple things to do to improve the cybersecurity situation. The problem is that when you have theft of ideas, theft of, of data, it's hard to notice until it's actually been used, and by then it's far too late. Um, and so the, the players involved who should have been protecting themselves didn't find the incentives to do so. Um, I'm hoping we're coming to a turnaround. I don't know. Other questions in the audience? If I can add to the tactical level. Uh, the CIA and NSA can create things, and uh, they can create them particularly on a tactical level. They tend not to work at scale, actually. Uh, so the tactical level is something they will continue to advance. Probably the biggest problem that we face, though, is ubiquitous encryption. Uh, the first people who will buy encryption will not be you. Uh, probably won't even be the civil agencies of the United States government. But if you've ever heard of the Zetas, they'll be first in line. Uh, the Russian business network will be first in line. What we find that every time we increase security, it's the bad guys that go by first. Uh, when there's a new computer released, a new version of the iPhone, the first people who buy it are the criminals because the old version is now going to be attacked. If I'm a cyber attacker, I want to use my attacks before they become obsolete because the life of a phone is a couple of years at best. What we're seeing is that we government, we average citizens, we, unless we're techies, we're falling further and further behind the other side. And so on the tactical level, the issue is the reconnaissance of the target. Uh, is there a way to access that data at scale, or must you do it on a tactical level? And we're faced now with the traditional issue of the second, second oldest profession, and that is that espionage will continue, will always continue and that's how they're going to do it. Frankly, I'd rather have someone who works for you in my pay than have your crypto key. That's so easier, I'm, I'm going to be in, in uh, the burr under Jim's saddle. Um, um, and, I like it. I like um, this. Uh, in the mid-1990s, as I described, there was this, this crypto wars. Uh, the National Research Council was chartered to do a study on cryptography and cryptography policy. This was came out in 1996, and it had two... It had a number of conclusions. It's a good report. It's still worth reading even now. But the two conclusions um, that I want to point to are, one, it said you can have an educated and thoughtful discussion on cryptography policy without being cleared. You can't know all the examples without being cleared, but the thoughtful discussion can happen in public. The second conclusion was that, on balance, the United States is better off with the deployment of strong cryptography okay. than not. Um, so and why is that? What? Why is that? Because if you want to protect Google's software, if you want to protect Merck's patents, if you want to protect IBM's research, if you want to protect whatever Lockheed Martin is developing or, or uh, Boeing is developing before they, you know, while, while they're developing it, you need strong encryption, you need good security. Uh, and that's what you do. 
and that's worth it. And um, I remember hearing an ex, quite senior person of the NSA saying, look, anybody who wants to go after me or after a particular person, they can always get in with enough resources. What you do with encryption and other security mechanisms is you protect yourself enough. It's like you put your, the best lock on the street on your house. And then the burglar says, yeah, he's got a good lock. His windows are all closed. Not worth it to break in here. I'll go down the street. On the other hand, if you happen to have a Picasso in your house and nobody on your street has a Picasso, they'll go after your house regardless of the locks on your house. So the point is that if that's true for an ex-senior person at the NSA, it's also true for the treasure troves in China, in Iraq, in Iran, and so on. Everybody is probably familiar with Stuxnet and how the U.S. and Israel went into uh, the, the nuclear facility in Iran and destroyed the centrifuges. Very clever tactics and so on. They put a lot of energy and effort into doing that. Um, the U.S. government has been has been able to to get inside Huawei, the Chinese networking company. That was a story in the Times a couple of weeks ago. Um, so the point is that you have to look at your resources and say, okay, if we're going to enable the deployment of strong cryptography and other security mechanisms, we're, securing, we're enabling the securing of U.S. industry at a cost that it will be harder for us to attack other places because they will also use that technology. How do they get in? They find out what software is running on the particular machine. They scan the machine. Then they get in by planting a vulnerability. And this is, in fact, what law enforcement has increased the National Security Agency has been using for quite some time. So how many of you have encrypted your laptops? Yeah, me too. We have to at UT. Well, okay, so that's the sort of thing you can do. But look up elliptical curve cryptography, if you wish, and imagine that a software crypto program that uses an accelerometer to generate a random number, and imagine that where every phone has its own crypto key. The problem for intelligence and the problem for law enforcement is that that means I can break it, but that's a couple years per phone. Much less, much less. You'd go to the app on the phone. You find an app on the phone that's easy to break. And I'm taking notes. Hold but, on, so <laughs> so she, she, she obviously uses an Android because, yes, you could definitely do that on that. But some of the other phones. <laughs> Actually, I'm real careful. I use a cell phone. I don't use a smartphone. So we, have, we have some more questions. I want to I get people in. I'm just going to go around the room. Je- this gentleman uh, right here. What, I don't know your name. I'm sorry. So numbers, um, my understanding from talking to, to people related to the defense industry is that recruitment is way down and mor- morale is way down the last nine months. Um, my understanding from having been recently at Google, and I don't, these two sentences are not related at all. Um, my understanding from having been recently at Google is that it's still very attractive to be at places like Google. Um, I think the numbers are small enough in the defense agencies that, that I'm not, that's why I said disconnect those two sentences. I think this uh, this gentleman back here, whose name I should know, but I've forgotten. I'm sorry. So given all the um, uh, variables, forces, and considerations here, um, and 
you've mentioned Europe as being dis close to us. How is this going to affect, since the issue was brought up about treaties, how is, this going, how is it now currently affecting the negotiations around the TPP, for example, where we have somebody that's not culturally close to us, has different economic and social ideologies than we do, and, and you, you mentioned uh, Yahoo, for example. Um, how is this going to affect the negotiations that are going on and the outcome of TPP? Um, it's complicated them, Do you obviously. Want to TPP is? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, TTP is the um, current ongoing trade negotiations between the U.S. and Europe, um, which are interesting because the trade barriers currently really aren't traditional trade barriers like tariffs and other things. They're regulatory issues. So it could be some health and safety regulation in Europe that prevents us from exporting agricultural products, or it could be some, um, I don't know, some, uh, yeah. That, that kind of thing. Um, and so there was a debate at the very beginning about whether data protection should be part of that negotiation, as the U.S. said, because it's hard to think of a, of a bigger potential regulatory trade barrier than something like what Europe is trying to do on data protection um, to prevent especially services trade between the U.S. and Europe, um, which almost inevitably involves data transfer, um, or whether you should keep them out of the debate as the Europeans preferred because, in their view, privacy and data protection issues are sort of fundamental rights that aren't things you can negotiate away in a trade agreement. Um, so that was already, even before the Snowden revelations, that was already kind of a complicated debate, um, which was only aggravated um, by the fact that you now have a European public that's, you know, even more sensitive um, to the possibility. I think the way that's going to play out um, is that we're going to have the European Parliament elections in May. Um, Europe is going to continue negotiations over the data protection directive I mentioned earlier. Um, and then and the U.S. is going to have to engage very hard to try to make sure that the, the worst parts of that um, directive don't make it into the final bill, but it's, uh, or the final um, directive, but it's, um, it's complicated it without question. Great. Um, Ken. <clears throat> Sorry. So the debate we're listening to is a debate that's been going on for 30 years, uh, and the issues haven't changed really. Uh, it, it's true, isn't it, that the real issue here is, on the one hand, uh, we have both interests in offense and defense in the world of uh, information interception or whatever we want to call it, right? And the question is, are the equities greater? On the defense side, do we have more to gain from uh, secure defense uh, at the price of giving up some capability on the offense side? We'd have to do more exploitation of human vulnerabilities versus sort of technical vulnerabilities. Or do we have more assets that we're concerned about defending on the defense side that, that makes sort of ubiquitous encryption, for example, on the Internet more important to us? And, you know, it's a scale, right, with one set of... One set of one set of uh, one set of interests on one side of the scale, and another set of interests on the other side of the scale, and thus historically, I think until fairly recently, at, first of all, the, the 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 balance of the two interests on the two sides perhaps is much more disproportionate than it is right now, and secondly, uh, it strikes me that. 
the, you know, that balance has shifted, and in the first part of the new century, we shifted more towards offense and less and less to perhaps worrying about defense. So I don't know if that's a correct analysis, and whether the whether the balance of the U.S. interest has really shifted fundamentally with uh, you know, and and whether the globalization of the technology has changed that calculus as well. But is that a correct way to think about it? And would you defend or propose going in the direction <coughs> of offense at the expense of some defense? I mean, anyway. So is that wrong in terms of viewing the issue? Well, I would vote for defense. And the reason for it is because of the rise of non-state actors. Um, I, I believe anarchy is actually a bad idea. And if you don't defend yourselves, then it makes it open for people with a range of motives to intervene. No, I think we should be putting our effort on defense. We define defense as security, offense as surveillance. Yes. I want to defend my networks, my devices, those of my great aunt. I want to defend those, and I'm willing to give up offensive capability for that purpose, in part because of people like Edward Snowden. Whether you think whatever you think of him, the fact is he thinks he's a philosopher king. And I worry about people who decide that their judgment, their wisdom exceeds that of, in our system at least, the collective of the democracy. The democracy is sometimes wrong. Martin Luther King demonstrated that fairly amply. So those things do happen. But I worry in a world where two idiots in a garage can cause thousands of people to die, by accident, by the way. Uh, we had an example a few years ago. Uh, there was a... 10-year-old boy. He was doing a science fair project in Orem, Utah. He wanted to do it on water rights management in the Columbia River Valley. He wrote the power authorities and asked for information. They ignored him. So he hacked into their computers and he wrote a program that, in fact, would have opened all the floodgates on all the dams on the Columbia River at the same time. Wow. Uh, 10 years old. Now, the virtue is that the, one of the guys doing the judging was employed by WordPerfect. Some of us remember them. And he recognized it. So I have a situation where people can do damage unintentionally. So I vote for security and defense ahead of everything else. And, and I would like to amplify that. I, I completely agree. Um, in the U.S., the number bandied about, and I have never seen a real source for it, is that 85% of critical infrastructure is in private hands. Um, and while some of that is subject to regulatory pressure, like the power grid and uh, the telcos, much of it is not subject to regulatory pressure. Um, but it has finally become clear to these people that maybe they should do something. Um, and, and so, absolutely, yes, uh, security, uh, it's, uh, security is where we should be heading. And that's, that's part of what you see in that decision, uh, that, uh, that recommendation back in the 1996 crypto study uh, by the National Research Council. So I, we're, we're out of time. I just want to give Kristen a chance to say some final words because we haven't given you uh, as many uh, chances well, on the soapbox well, here. Well, I just so. get back to go back to my, um, to my particular role. I mean, to me, the one point we have to keep in mind is that we can't be indifferent to the reaction of um, overseas communities to the NSA revelations. We can be you know, cynical about their motives and citing their commercial objectives, um, but we really can't be indifferent. Um, first, because 
we care about the environment in which U.S. companies operate. We have, you know, lots of U.S. companies who have to do business in places like Europe and Brazil and Indonesia, and so we want them to succeed in those environments. Um, but the other big thing is that we care about the environment in which um, other intelligence um, entities operate. So we care about um, the ability of GCHQ in the U.K. or DGSE in um, France, you know, for our, our sophisticated kind of intelligence partners to be able to do their jobs. Um, we can have reason to be very proud of the um, sophistication and capabilities of our own intelligence community, um, but we don't operate in a vacuum. Um, and other intelligence communities are important partners and sometimes important checks um, on U.S. judgments. Um, there was an example of that when I was in the, at the State Department. The um, intelligence community put out a revised national intelligence estimate on Iran, um, which President Bush decided um, to, he decided to declassify a version of that um, because the NIE had concluded that Iran had suspended its weaponization efforts, um, which was obviously very, you know, big news when we were in the middle of Security Council debates about next steps on what to do about Iran's weaponization efforts. And, um, and it took about three minutes before that got out before I started getting calls from my Security Council counterparts saying, um, first, that was unhelpful, and two, that was wrong, and here's why we think it was wrong. Um, now, I don't, you know, that's a, you know, that gets into a lot of things, um, and reasonable people can disagree, but the important thing is that, you know, the French and German and British and Israeli intelligence agencies were contesting a, ju a very important judgment that was being made by our intelligence community, and, and so we care that entities like that exist. Um, so that's all to say that, you know, as we're thinking about kind of fallout from these revelations, it is important um, for the U.S. government to continue to make the case to overseas population why we're... Doing that's, the right a great, thing. that's a great point. Jim, last words. Uh, one last, uh, to Kristen's point. Uh, general Bernard Rogers, who was, in my mind, an eight-star general, one of the most impressive people I ever met, famously said one time, the reason that NATO exists is to keep the Americans from doing something stupid. And that <laughs> is true today. So the, the historian in me has to correct that. Lord Ismay says, right, it's to keep the Germans down, the Russians out and the Americans in, right? That's NATO for you. I think we're out of time. I apologize. It's time for lunch, right? So. Yes.